0: Well as you know we've been and will be for several months in a series on Christ in the Old Testament and as I said at uh, at the reading of the old testament we will we will be hopping and skipping around a little bit uh, to to choose passages fitting to our moment and our season in the church calendar so uh, again in in a week or so we'll start considering some of the some birth narratives when we get into the season of advent and then in lent some some of the sacrificial uh passages so hence we've skipped over passages like genesis 15 uh for example and have jumped today to genesis 28 the story of uh of jacob and his flight from his family down to uh laban's house and again we're wanting to look at these texts um because we want to read and learn to read and develop uh, the ability to read the Old Testament properly and well and to do that we must see Christ it must draw us to Christ every passage, not just Old Testament but New Testament also if it merely leads us to some moral standard then we have not read it properly it's, it's failed, we failed um, it must lead us to Christ. It doesn't mean there are not moral standards. It does not mean that we should not learn a moral lesson from Jacob. Of course we should, right? He's a rat. We should learn from that and not be rats, okay? We should not be deceivers. Um, we should not be those who are grasping after the, uh, you know, the the blessings on our own and striving on our own together. Granted, but if the texts do not bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are not reading them properly because Jesus said that Moses wrote of him and if Moses is writing here in Genesis 28 to his people the Israelites uh, he's writing actually the book of Genesis to them while they're in the Exodus so they've just they've come out of Egypt and now Moses is writing Genesis um, to them and giving them these stories to chide them on to push them toward the promised land and to keep them from looking back hence all the promises about the land I'm going to give this land to you I'm going to give this land to you I'm going to give this land to you uh, very important for the Israelites who are now outside of Egypt to hear these stories from Moses, to chide them on. So they press on. Oh, that's right. God promises to us. He's taking us there. He's taking us there. And you know the, the danger and, the, the, in fact, the proclivity of the people of Israel was actually to keep looking back to Egypt. Was this a dumb move? This sounded so good when we were back you know, <laughs> you know heading toward the Red Sea. But from that moment on, it's kind of felt dumb. You know, this, did we make a right decision here? we got armies chasing us. we got no food. We've got no water. You know, it's, it's a mess. And so was this the right move? And, and Moses is scribbling as fast as he can, you know, the book of Genesis to say, look at these stories. Remember, this is what God promised from the beginning. Look, this is what God's promised from the beginning. So th- Moses writes this story, and it has that um, penultimate end to push them to Canaan and not back to Egypt. But Jesus, when we come to Him, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, as John, said, as uh, uh, John the Baptist said, we then have the full light shining on the book, and we see, oh yes, in the Old Testament, our eyes were dim, the light was dim. I could only see the penultimate end that the book was talking about. Right? It was about Canaan. It was about pushing Israelites into the Promised Land. But when Jesus comes, and the shadows are all cast out, and the light is fully on oh wow we see something much deeper we see the ultimate end uh, to which this book was driving us and pointing us you couldn't have expected first generation Israel to you know in the wilderness to get that of course they couldn't see Jesus here it's only after we meet Jesus that now the light shines back and we say whoa wow and this is what Jesus was saying to his audience you, ask, you know, Moses testifies against you because if you believed him, you believed me, because he was ultimately writing about me. Well, here we stand on this side. We have no excuse, and yet we still fall into these traps. We still kind of have this very, this very short-term vision of the Old Testament, and again, turn them into moral lessons. I should say mere moral lessons. And so what we're doing is we're working our way through different Old Testament stories seeking not to do that, but rather to help us understand Christ better. And of course, it won't be long, we'll be celebrating his advent and his birth. So today we jump to Genesis 28. Now we're skipping over a lot of narrative, uh, but it's narrative that I assume most of us know pretty well, because we've kind of left off with Abram, and, and last week we talked about his encounter with uh, this character Melchizedek, who was clearly a, a shadow of the coming of Jesus Christ, that royal priest. That king of righteousness, the king and priest of peace. Um, so we thought about that last week, but now we're we're, we're jumping over, uh, you know, the birth of Isaac. We're jumping over the sacrifice of Isaac, uh, the you know the the, uh, the call to sacrifice Isaac. Um, we're jumping over some of Isaac's life, and we're jumping over Jacob's early life. And all the way to Genesis 28. So this sermon does require you to know your Bibles a little bit because you got to kind of know all that stuff. That, that stuff is all there in the background. So by the time we get to Genesis 28, we got Jacob on the run. And so let's just remind ourselves of the immediate context that brings us to this moment, this sunset moment, literally, in the life of Jacob, if, if you caught that little... That little bit there, um, you literary people, uh, would catch that. That as Moses writes this, he says, "And the sun was going down." You know, the, this is this is a dark moment for Jacob. Um, the sun is setting; things are getting quite dark, right? Um, and in fact, uh, as uh, one commentator points out, the sun does not come back up again in the narrative. I mean, and certainly several days go by. In fact, years of days go by. But in the text, the next time we see the sun rise is in Genesis 32, when when Jacob is on his way back to the land and wrestles with God. It's daybreak, and so Moses is Moses, is this wonderful writer. We don't give enough credit for his his writing. Is doing something pretty neat there. Um, but in, so in this text, we're we're, we're entering into this, the dark days, if you will. And so let's kind of set the stage who is this joker jacob Uh, well we know that from the very beginning he was a child of promise right his mom rebecca is pregnant with twins and the promise of the lord comes to her this kind of bizarre promise that the the older will serve the younger uh that that that, in fact, Esau, who will be the older, is going to serve the younger. Now, this is the, this is the reversal of common fortune of the day, right? The oldest son gets the blessing of the father. He inherits the father's house. He inher- inherits the father's property. And really, he receives the primary blessing. And then he'll have to look over his younger brother. But the, the younger brother is going to have to serve the older brother. But right from the beginning, the Lord turns the tables. And we see a lot of this in, uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, and really throughout the scriptures, right? Go, go all the way to 1 Corinthians 1, where it says, And God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise, right? That whole pattern is, in some sense, encapsulated here in this story of Jacob and Esau, where God does this shocking reversal. It's, it's not, okay, you're the strongest, you're the firstborn, yep, we're doing it like all the other kingdoms. No, we're doing it the opposite of all the other kingdoms. I take the weak, I, I take the least. And this was important for Israel to remember too, because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, the Lord reminds them, hey, don't forget, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest of all the nations. I chose you because you were the least of all the peoples. Right? You're the Jacob in the story, guys. Okay, you're not that you're not the firstborn among all the nations. All right, you're the losers of the nations, and that's why I chose you. You remember how things went in Egypt? I don't know if you all remember, you were slaves there. Right, you were slaves. I didn't choose Egypt, the mighty, powerful nation. I chose the losers of the land. I, I chose the slaves and said, "Those are my people." And then remember, I rescued you out of there, right? So this is the pattern that God is doing. And 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 before we chuckle about it, I hate to break it to you, <laughs> I, you know, you are the group of losers uh, that the Lord has chosen. Okay, so so we got to make some self-application here. Um, as as am I, by the way. So I'm I'm right in there with you. Um, So he's chosen chosen the least, and we get that here. But the problem is, Jacob, right, the least, didn't didn't want to settle for that. He wanted the blessing that was promised him right from the, even before he's born. This promise is given to him, but Jacob is not satisfied with merely being the loser who receives it. He wants to be the champion that achieves it. And you get this even, I mean, you know, just providentially in, the, in their birth, that as they're being born, you know, almost as if Jacob knew what was coming. It's like he's not satisfied with being the second born. And while Esau is being born, he grabs his heel as if to like pull him back in so like he could be the first born. <laughs> There's so there's there's just an amazing image happening there because it really is characteristic of the rest of Jacob's life. They, you know, he, I want to grab Esau, pull him back in the womb so I can get out first. I can be the, the heir. Now, of course, they're they're newborn. So we can't we can't attribute this to, to his will, but sort of just to, it's, it's in his character. That Jacob is going to be a striver, a conniver, a grasper. You know, he's going to he's going to try to achieve the blessing by his own means. And, of course, then you know the other stories that go along with this, even to the point of deceiving and, you know, of, of swindling his brother. I mean, his brother's a meathead. You know, I mean, he, he gives up the, the – you know, we, we always say he swindles him out. I mean, he didn't swindle anything. His brother Esau basically said, yes, I'm willing to give him my birthright for a pot of stew. All right, That's not being swindled. That's just being a moron. I mean, you give up everything for a... Bl- so, so he's not even swindling. It's just pretty blatant, just bad de- negotiating. Um, and so he gets that. That was, that was no good. But again, here's Jacob who's trying to figure out a way to connive the blessing away from his brother, this, this right that he has as the eldest, instead of trusting that the Lord will provide. He's going to do it his way. And okay, Esau said, I'll give it to you. But what good does that do? You still got to convince dad. And I'm not going to go to dad and say, hey, dad, listen, we worked this whole deal out over a pot of stew. I don't think Isaac's going to be like, okay, well, that's the way it is. And I guess I got to give it to you. You know, Isaac's probably not going to do that. So so, Esau, so Jacob has to figure out a way to, to now get this out of dad without explaining the whole, I, I took it from my brother for a pot of stew. So you know that the, the the putting his brother's shirt on and, and putting lambs wool, which is really disturbing, how hairy Esau was, but he put lambs wool on his on his arms to make his dad feel. Yeah, that's Esau. That's a really hairy guy. But he and then he comes to he comes to his dad, his blind dad, and says, and says, Dad, you know I'm here to receive my blessing. And you know, Isaac, <laughs> Isaac is suspicious. He knows his boys. Come here, that I might smell you, <laughs> to really know it's Esau. So Esau, look, Esau had a lot of issues. Okay, and and it, the only way Isaac's going to know it's him is if he gets a good whiff of him and says, Yeah, well, yeah, that's uh, that's yep, that's my boy, that's Esau. And so he he comes he comes in Esau, he comes in Esau's clothes and he touches his arm and it's very hairy, and he says uh, he says, Okay, that is you. Okay, I'll give you I'll give you the blessing. And Isaac runs out with the blessing. And then when Esau comes home and says, you know what? I think I'm going to go in and get my blessing. Uh, bad, you know, bad timing for Jacob because Esau goes in to get the blessing. And Isaac says, you know, well, son, what are you doing here? I, I, I just gave it to you. And oh, boy. And then Esau commits in his heart, that's it. It's, I've had enough of my joker brother. You know, it's over. I'm going to kill him. So mom decides I got to look out for my son and get him out of here. And so she says, look, go down to Laban's house and just hang out there for a while and get away from here until Esau calms down. And then she comes up with this, you know, bizarre you know, thing to say to Isaac of why she's chasing Jacob away to say, look, we got to find a wife. We can't handle these Canaanite women that, you know, uh, Esau's marrying these Canaanite women and I can't have any more of them around the house. So I need him to find a good wife. So I'm going to send him down to my brother and let, let him work it out down there. And Isaac is okay with that. And so, so Jacob runs. But really, Jacob's not going down there to find a wife. Jacob's going down there for his life. He's going down there because his brother is going to try to kill him. And even when we see Jacob come back 20 years later, he's still fearful that Esau is probably going to try to kill him. And so we'll consider that story later. So when we find Jacob now in our text, it's after all of that, and this conniver, this heel grabber, this deal maker, this liar and deceiver, uh, his, his, his ways have pretty much now caught up with him, and he's on the run. And so it's weird because he's been given the promise by his father that he would receive the land, and now he's so far from it. Right? He's having to leave it all behind. And he's alone. And he's on the run to a strange place. Even though it's still family, it's still, I mean, cousins and so forth. It's still a strange place. And so when we find Jacob, he's on the run. He's in exile, alienated from everybody, alone. And the sun is going down. And Jacob is having to deal with the consequences of his sin. But as he goes in twenty eight and this is the way the text begins that as he goes, his father blesses him again. may God this is verse three may God almighty bless you now again, let's remember who he's speaking to here. Um, there's not a lot good about this guy. you know he's one of the patriarchs, but he is a complete loser i mean there is there is nothing praiseworthy about this man really to this point, and yet. To him, Isaac makes this amazing prayer and blessing. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. And Jacob runs away. So he leaves with blessing ringing in his ear, and yet... It's this, it's this um, um, uh, um, disjointed, uh, um, incongruous, non-harmonious blessing. It's, like, it's, it's wonderful, but you're getting it as you're fleeing out into outer darkness. Uh, and you seem to have lost everything by your stupidity. Which, by the way, the blessing was something God said he would give you from the beginning anyway. Right? This is all stuff God said he would do for you. And you, by your striving, seem to have lost everything. But his father blesses him as he goes. And this brings us to this place called Bethel, which is really the, 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 the meat of our text this morning, in which Jacob now, in the darkness, the sun going down, as Moses tells us, finds a place, a random place to settle, finds a stone to put under his head as a pillow, <laughs> another, another sign of the comfort and luxury that Jacob is living in at this point and he he puts this this stone under his head for a pillow and hits the sack. And as he does, the Lord appears to him in a dream. So it's important that we remember the context that we come to Jacob in this most amazing vision that he gets. It's in a context of striving. It's in a context of self-effort. It's in a context of sin and deception and self-reliance. That now we come into this amazing blessing. And it's important for us to remember because as the Lord appears to him here, it is not because of anything good Jacob has done. This, this story of Jacob, in particular, I mean, we know that because the promise given to Jacob was given before, as, as Paul says in Romans 9, before the twins had done anything good or bad. It was said, Jacob I have loved, and he so have I hated. So before they, before they did anything good or bad, blessing was given to Jacob. But that now comes home. Now that we've really gotten, okay, that okay why the Lord would choose to give, to give Jacob these things? Okay, what a, well, that's a very gracious act that he would do that to Jacob. But now it's like it's been blown up. It's been put into cartoon size for us. Now it's not only before they've done anything good or bad. It's after he has done everything bad. That the story of Jacob, particularly this story in in verse 28, is highlighted to show us the amazing, sovereign, and providential grace of Almighty God. That if in Abram we see the story of what faith looks like in Jacob, and not that we don't see what grace looks like, of course we do, but here in 28, in Genesis 28, we really get this big vision of, of what God's grace is Jacob is a deceiver, a conniver a self-reliant loser and here he's on his way out in, in darkness as the sun's going down and everything's failing and the Lord appears to him and in his dream he sees a vision of a ladder as we say it's certainly not Jacob's ladder well, we sing songs about Jacob's ladder and it sounds good but it's the Lord's ladder the Lord's stairway all of a sudden he just in in his dream he sees this stairway and angels are ascending and descending on this thing like some you know some some uh uh, ancient near east temple you know these ziggurats these step thing he sees this and angels are ascending and descending and the lord appears and our our text tells us and the lord appears at the top of it. it apparently there's some complications in the Hebrew here. Not sure whether it actually means he appears atop of it or whether it means he appears beside Jacob. So either way, either he's, he's there exalted on the top of this thing or he sees this amazing thing and there the Lord appears beside him or next to him. And if we're just tracking with the text, I know we already know the story, but if we were just tracking with the text and you've got Jacob on the run like this, given everything we know about Jacob, and the Lord appears to him in this moment, you might say, okay, what do you think the Lord is gonna say to him? And if we were honest, if we were just tracking with the text without sort of all of our theological and uh, background of grace and our understanding of these things, you might say he's gonna come to smite him, he's gonna come to smack him down, or if not smack him down, At least say, hey, I know what you've done. I know who you really are. He might come to engage him and to rebuke him, to chastise him, to punish him perhaps. And so because we don't anticipate that, because we already know the story, we're not really shocked by what happens. But we should be shocked by what happens. Because the Lord appears there with Jacob at Bethel. And he does not rebuke him. Not only that, at least in the text, he never even mentions anything Jacob's done. He doesn't even say, look, I'm going to bless you, but you know, right, that I know that you did this, this, that you have been a self-reliant person. I blessed you. You refused to acknowledge me. Now, I'm still going to bless you, but you did this and this and this and this, which is definitely what I would do. Okay? I have done I've taken that approach with my kids for how old's Andy let's see for, for the past 21 years <laughs> now I'm gonna I'm gonna be gracious here but I do want you to know I know what you did this is not what the Lord does this is grace over top of grace this is God sovereignly appearing to this runaway loser and merely blessing him in fact He confirms, he comes to him and says, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do everything your dad prayed for you. Your dad prayed for you before you left, before you went out. He said, hey, can I I pray with you real quick? And Isaac prayed, and he prayed all these blessings on him. And then the Lord appears to him and says, I'm going to confirm all those blessings to you. Your descendants are going to be as the dust of the earth. You will spread abroad to the east and the west, the north and the south, and in you and your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. The sun is setting. The sky's getting dark. You're about to go into a dark, rough patch here. right? The swindler himself is going to go down and get swindled by old Uncle Laban. Oh, it runs in the family. Because Laban's going to have his fun with him. right? With his whole deal with Rachel and Leah and... And he swindles out of him like 20 years of labor. But in this darkness, behold, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. And I'm going to bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I've spoken to you. No, No mentions of this sinful, self-reliant lifestyle. Just a reiteration and confirmation of the promise that he made to Abraham. And that he made to Isaac, and that he even made to Jacob before Jacob was even born I am with you, and I will bless you. To Jacob, this creep. And I wonder if we're okay with that. And the reason I think about that is it's like if you really read the story, you really do kind of get sick of Jacob. He's a punk. And I wonder whether we're okay with God showing such grace to a punk like Jacob. You know, in C.S. Lewis's work, The Great Divorce, it's an interesting story, you know. Uh, he, it's fictitious. He's not saying this is my vision of what heaven's really like. It's a story. But, you know, people go when they die, and they haven't been raised yet, but they, they, they die, and they go to Greytown, which is like the, the entryway to hell. Or if they're Christians, they die, and they go to this, the, to the, the bright place, the, the sunshiny place, and And with the holy celestial city off in the distance, and and eventually they'll get there. And the people in Greytown, when they die, their souls, they eventually just go out and out and out and out into outer darkness, into complete solitude. But in Lewis's story, you know, a bus shows up at Greytown and will take you up to heaven if you'd like to go. And you're welcome to hop on the bus and take a trip up there. (laughs) And so you go up, and and these these people decide, you know what, I'll get on the bus and go. And so they get on the bus and they go up there. And <clears throat> when they get up there, all of them want to leave. <laughs> all of them, eventually, they encounter somebody from the celestial city who they know comes and meets them and kind of even invites them to come with them back to heaven, to the celestial city, to make the long trek, the beautiful trek into glory. But as they each encounter their, this person who comes and welcomes them, they eventually get in a squabble and say, no, I'm out of here. I want to go back. And in several of the cases, what it is that makes them want to go back is the fact that heaven would be a place for such people as you. right? They say, wait, the guy, the guy, says, the guy from Graytown says, hey, wait a second. You're, you're coming to me and inviting me into heaven? They let you in? But I know what you were like back in the life. I remember it. You did this. You did that. I remember your life. They let you in there? If they let, I, I was a person who was on. I was the person who did this. I did that. I worked as hard as I could. I provided for my family. I did this. I did that. I did all these things. And they let people like you in there? If they let people, I don't want any, I don't want any part of it. You know, one guy comes, he's a murderer. Another guy is a guy who came and he was disrespectful to his boss the whole time and undermined him and took from him. You know, and these guys are like, if they're letting people like you in there, I don't want to be in there. And they get back on the bus, they go back down to hell. And it's convicting. It's convicting, especially when you come to a passage like this. It's like, are you okay with God giving this kind of blessing to Jacob? Who his whole life has been one of conniving and striving and, and being a punk. Yet to him, the Lord just freely grants forgiveness and blessing. And yeah, we got to wrestle with that. What's revealed in the story of these people who don't want to go in because of these losers who are coming and meeting them is their own pride, right? They're the Jacobs. They're the strivers. They're the strivers who think, well, I've done all these things. If the Lord won't honor me, I don't want any part of it. If he's going to just freely give it to people like you. I I put more time in. I put more energy in. I've worked harder at this. But in Jacob, we get a picture of the unadulterated gospel of grace. This is the story of the Bible right here. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is not one of us who deserves it more than Jacob deserved it. Yet God freely appears and ultimately does not call him out on it. Not that we don't have to be called out on our sins. There's other texts that, of course, make that point. But here what we see is just pure, free grace. I will freely give you the land that you're now leaving. I'm going to freely give you the land that is going to feel so far away from you. It's not going to be immediate. It's going to feel really dark and it's going to feel very, very far away. But just know as you go that I will be with you and know that I will bring you back into the land. And not only that, that I will confirm my promises to Abram and make you, like I said to him, an agent of blessing for the world. This is sheer and pure grace and to be a Christian brothers and sisters you need to be okay with grace you need to come to grips with the fact that you are no better than Jacob and that if you are going to be blessed it is only going to happen this way this is the only way it happens by mere and sheer grace now what's Jacob's response to this it's interesting because when Jacob wakes up he doesn't go oh wow okay you know I'm so refreshed (laughs) because I had this dream last night about God just giving me everything my whole life I've been striving for. Everything I've worked hard for, I've now been told is mine freely. Of course, you were told that from when you were little, but you would think he'd wake up refreshed. That's not how he wakes up. He wakes up afraid. He wakes up afraid. He says, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. Now this has been really the whole life of Jacob. That little statement sort of reveals the whole life. Surely God was here and I didn't know it. It's just that in this moment, the Lord came and revealed it to him and brings him a holy fear. When we are talking today in the, in the exhortation and saying, brothers and sisters, one thing we got to reckon with is the fact that we serve a holy God. It's like, yes, that is part of the Christian experience. We need to have a holy fear. It's grace, says John Newton, that taught my heart to be at peace and to be at ease and finally just let go of everything. No, Newton says, it's grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fear relieved. But it's not like, well, fear is an unhealthy thing and then grace comes and boom, it all goes away. No, grace, teach, by grace, you have your knees knocked. By grace, you remember, oh my goodness, I'm in the presence of a holy God. It's an act of grace for God to peel back the veil and make you fall on your face and recognize that he is holy and you are a sinner. You are a deceiver. You are a striver. You are a conniver. You've been relying on yourself the whole time. And we're not afraid. We don't, we're not bothered by this. It's just life. It's what we do. And then grace teaches our heart to fear. And then grace, our fears relieved. Jacob is awakened. Now, we got a long road for Jacob, right? The sun's going down. Jacob's going to have to go through even more stuff. And he's going to continue conniving. He's going to try and make deals with Laban. He's gonna, then even when he's on his way back to see his brother, he's kind of got it, but he's trying to swindle deals. If I give all my stuff to my brother, I can maybe have him be okay by the time he gets to me. I mean, we'll get there. He's, he's still going to struggle with this until finally the Lord breaks him at, at, at Peniel, you know, in the wrestling match. So Jacob's kind of you know, this doesn't happen. There's not an immediate change in him but by grace he is awakened and he sees what he should have seen his whole life is that God is in this place and he is afraid and then he says surely this is God was in this place and this is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven house of God Bethel but gate of heaven is Babel Babel we're back to the story of Babel this is Bethel and this is Babel. It's interesting that what the Lord shows to Jacob is the same thing that was going on in Babel. right? Remember what they're doing in Babel. Babel, right? They're trying to build a tower that reaches to the heaven. Remember we said, let us for ourselves. Striving, striving, striving. We will make a name for ourselves. We'll build a tower that reaches into the heavens. And you'll remember the Lord couldn't even see it. Moses, tongue-in-cheek, says the Lord had to come down to see this thing, this amazing thing they'd done. It's pathetic. And the Lord crushes it and scatters them. He takes all their self-effort, all their conniving, and scatters them. It does nothing. And then freely, in the next chapter, chapter 12, blessed Abram, gave Abram freely everything that those in Babel were striving after. Well, we get to 28, and the same point is made. But here, even more shockingly, it's given to those who are striving. It's given to those who, in their own efforts, were trying to build a tower. That's essentially what Jacob's trying to do. He's trying to build his own tower. He's trying to make a name for himself. He's trying to grasp after the blessing himself. But this time, the Lord doesn't smash it and say, All right, get out of here, you're done. The Lord smashes it. Right? The Lord comes down and opens his eyes and makes him see that all, his, all the work of his hands is rubbish, like Paul says. Right? Paul says in his own autobiography, When I met Christ, all of a sudden everything that was gained to me became loss. Worse than loss. It was rubbish. It was manure. Compared to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Everything I had built up just got Smashed. But rather than God scattering Jacob and destroying him, he kind of combines the story of Babel and the story of Abram into this beautiful moment where he smashes all his self-effort and goes, it's nothing, and makes him fear, and then freely gives to him all that he was striving after from the beginning, but just freely given to him. This is the nature of Christianity. Jesus, of course, you don't need me to make the connection for you in John chapter one, when Jesus comes and he calls Nathanael, and there's this funny little moment, and he says to Nathaniel, you know, come. Nathaniel's like, I can't believe anything good could come out of Nazareth. And then Philip's like, No, trust me, you gotta see this guy. Come, come and see it. And Jesus says, Ah, look at this. An Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Right? A Jacob, right, in whom there is no deceit. And he says, hey, you, you, you think you know me? And Jesus says, well, I saw you sitting under the, the tree over there. He says, well, you're the king of kings. And Jesus says, wait, you think, you think I'm the king just because I said I saw you over there but under the tree? It's kind of a funny moment. He says, well, guess what? You're even going to see greater things than that. If, you, if, you're, if you're blown away by the fact that I saw you under that tree, <laughs> wait till you see this. You, Jacob, in whom there is no deceit, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Right? I am Jacob's ladder. I am the ladder at Bethel. I am the gateway to heaven. I am the God of Jacob who stood beside him as now I stand beside you and bring to fulfillment all the blessings that were originally given to Jacob and to Isaac and to Abraham. I am that God who is going to accomplish it. And it's in this story that we see that Christianity, I was telling my apologetic students the other day that, you know, the argument uh, against Christianity and the exclusive claims of Christianity that says, well, listen, Christianity is just one way up the mountain to God. There's a, you know, Hinduism has its way and Buddhism has its way and Islam has its way. And look, at the end of the day, we're all just climbing this mountain to, to get up to God and you call him Allah and you call him Brahma and you call him, you know, Jesus and so forth. And I, I reminded we talked about several arguments against that, but but one of the things we tried to come to grips with as a class, fundamentally, before we went into any other arguments. All religions may, in fact, be attempts to get up that mountain. Islam's got its five pillars, and, and Buddhism has its you know its its uh, you know eightfold path, and and uh, you know Judaism has its ten commandments, and they all got their ways. But Christianity is not another way. Christianity is a different species of thing. You could talk about all religions or ways to get up that mountain. Fine. We would argue they all fail. None of them make it. Christianity is not another way. It's a different species of thing. It never claims to be a way up the mountain. It claims that God himself is the way and that God himself comes down It's not Babel building its way up. It's not Jacob going and grasping. It's God appearing. It's God coming simply to bless with no striving. He just shows up and gives everything. It's shockingly gracious. It's offensively gracious. It's it's so gracious it offends us because we're like, wait a second, I've worked harder than that guy. But that's the gospel. The gospel is God appearing, standing beside you and saying, I'm with you and I will give you all things. That is the shocking news of the gospel. It's a different species of thing. It's not a religion like unto any other. Theirs are all striving. Ours is mere receiving the gift and the grace of God. And nowhere... Is it depicted? I don't think. I'm sure other places it probably is, so don't call me on that. But but nowhere is it depicted like it's depicted here. Jacob's asleep as the sun's going down and the Lord appears and says, I am the connection between heaven and earth. It's not you having to build up, I will connect. I will bring heaven to you and give you everything you've been striving for. In Jesus Christ, he takes all our striving. He takes all our sin, all our futile efforts. And he connects us to heaven as a free act of his grace. This is the gospel that we celebrate on Reformation Sunday. There's my one plug for Reformation Sunday. <laughs> as Luther helped us to understand again and refocus and re- uh, us back on Christ alone. Because what he saw in the Catholic Church in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance was once again a return to striving. I will do Tell me the things I have to do. Even the sacraments became, rather than means of grace, they became means of striving. Okay, I have to do this, I have to do that. Tell me the list of things I have to do. And Luther almost killed himself over this. And then finally came to the realization by the grace of God that the good news of the gospel is all that God requires of me, he freely gives to me. Freely gives to me. And this is the truth at the heart of the Reformation. And it's what this text calls us to celebrate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. Teach our hearts to fear, we pray. And then by your grace, relieve those fears as we contemplate the gift of your grace. Father, that you would just freely come and give us all things is too much even to imagine. We frankly don't believe it. And so we continue to strive. We continue to be self-reliant. We continue to, to try to grind out our own salvation instead of merely working out that which you've already freely given to us. So I pray for us all today. I pray, Lord God, that you would guard us from that self reliance striving and refresh our souls in the goodness and sweetness of the glorious gospel of your abundant grace. We give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.